talk about a group of people, many thousands actually, hundreds of thousands, who may be celebrating either their first or second Christmas in Canada. These are Ukrainians who have been welcomed under the to Canada under the Canada-Ukraine Authorization for Emergency Travel. There is a three-year limit on their stay in Canada, but that is currently the subject of much debate. And to help us with this tonight, we're joined by Randall Baron chong Randall is the Executive Director of Pathfinders for Ukraine. Randall, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Sid. Uh, I wonder if we can just start, but can, can you kind of fill us in and bring us up to date on the on the authorization for emergency travel, what the parameters of that are? Because I know there was a recent survey done, and although there is this time limit that was imposed of three years, uh, it, it seems that many, if not most, that arrived in Canada under this program would like to stay here permanently now. Yeah, absolutely. So when the program was introduced on March 17th of 2022, it was a few weeks after the full-scale invasion uh, of Ukraine happened uh, in February of 2022. And since then, from the program from March until July, when the program applications ended, 1.2 million applicants applied for this program. And it's just astounding in terms of those numbers. That's three to four times the number of applicants to the U.S. or the U.K. program. And so far, about 210,000 people have arrived to Canada under that uh, visa. And so when we asked uh, our survey uh, respondents about how many of them intended at the end of that three-year work or study permit wanted to stay in Canada, 90% wanted to pursue uh, permanent residence. Do we know why... Uh, or do you have any thoughts on why so many more applied to come to Canada versus some of these other countries? I mean, we know that there are some, some very large Ukrainian populations existing, uh, particularly in some of the prairie provinces, but, but why would that be? Yeah, that, that's certainly one of the factors. I mean, prior to the, to the full-scale invasion, uh, Canada had uh, the second largest uh, population of U- Ukrainian diaspora. There was 1.3 million people who identified as Ukrainian-Canadians. That was one factor. The second factor was that the Canadian program uh, was was pretty light in terms of the requirements. You just needed to be Ukrainian national, so having essentially an ID that proved that, whereas the other programs uh, were more sponsorship-oriented. So the UK and the US programs, you needed a sponsor who would essentially welcome and host you, uh, whereas the Canadian program was relatively uh, you know, easier to obtain. We've seen from the filings we've gotten from the Canadian government that the acceptance rate was relatively high. It's close to 97.5%. Uh, and so for a lot of people, it wasn't necessarily their first option, but we know that some people, for example, that got it and haven't yet arrived, it was always their backup plan. Let's say if something went wrong in Ukraine or if a loved one died, they said that, okay, my option will then be to use my visa and go to Canada. And so when, when, when the Ukrainian nationals have arrived in Canada, and as you mentioned, the war broke out February of, of 2022, and so uh, and, and some have applied and been accepted but have not arrived yet, and we can talk about that in a moment. But for those who have, what are they finding in terms of job opportunities, in terms of uh, educational opportunities? Obviously, or I shouldn't say obviously, but it would seem that uh, there must be some success rate there if the vast majority of them, up to 90%, say we'd like to stay here permanently. Yeah, it's very interesting what we observed uh, between, let's say, the Ukrainians that stayed in Europe and the ones that went to Canada. Uh, from our survey, we found that 
76% of the war-displaced Ukrainians that came here to Canada are employed either full or part-time, which is pretty good considering many of them, um, you know, have only been here for a year, maybe a year and a bit more. Um, many of them didn't necessarily speak English before, but they've been able to find jobs. And what we noticed when we ran the Canada desk out of Warsaw Central Station, uh, everyone was asking for a work permit, um, even people who were in their 70s or 80s. And if you compare this to the Ukrainians that uh, stayed in Europe, for example, so there was a study done of war-displaced Ukrainians in Germany, France, Italy, and a few other countries, only 43% of them uh, are employed. So, so the ones in Canada came here with the intention, came here with the understanding that they'll need to work. And I think if you look at the kind of PR numbers, the folks that do want to uh, obtain PR, 76% of them uh, are employed and they're really looking to kind of, um, you know, realize their full potential. And one of the other questions we asked was, what's the sector you're working in and what's the level you're working at? And how does that compare to your job in Ukraine? And 50 percent of them are working in sectors and at levels different than they were in Ukraine. And Ukraine has one of the most educated populations in the world. They're, I think, the fourth most educated. Ninety percent of our respondents said that they had at least a bachelor's degree. So there's a lot of untapped potential with the ones that are here. So we hope with PR that will give them more stability with a job, the ability to do work study uh, and things like that. So does that lead us to believe that, that, that many that are, are coming over or who have already come over, they found employment, but like you say, they may have a degree in something from Ukraine, but they're working in something completely different. Maybe it's resource-based or seasonal-based or something along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's the kind of classic story of, you know, the engineer or the doctor uh, who's driving Ubers, right? Because obviously they're, they're looking to kind of get on their feet uh, the cost of living in some of the cities that they went to, obviously places like Toronto, um, it was the only city they knew. So that that's where they ended up. And they are faced with the harsh realities of the housing situation. And in fact, you know, when we were in Poland, um, you know, we ended up developing an app to help them decide on which city to go to based upon jobs data and looking at what their occupation was in Ukraine and translating that to what it means in Canada and finding which cities are most in demand for those jobs because jobs is pretty much the key indicator of where uh, success and settlement would be. And so we did try to see where more Ukrainians could thrive in other provinces. And we've seen other provinces really step up to try to attract Ukrainians to their provinces. There were representatives from Newfoundland in Poland um, to showing people, you know, what are the job opportunities there, helping people with housing and things like that. Saskatchewan has created special pathways uh, for Ukrainians as well. So um, jobs is really a key kind of um, factor in their deci- in their decision-making, but also in their ch- likelihoods of success. Uh, just before the break, Randall, I mentioned there are, I want to say, something like 700,000 who have been approved for the program but haven't arrived in Canada yet. Is that still open for them? And this, this what is currently a three-year time limit, does that clock start ticking when they get here, or is that started from when the program was first implemented? Uh, That starts once they arrive, uh, assuming that they will receive the open work permit or study permit. And so uh, those folks that have been approved uh, but not yet arrived, they're required to arrive by March 31st, 2024. So, you know, we are expecting, like we've seen in the past when the QIT program was originally set to expire, the week before um, it was set to expire, we saw bumps in terms of the number of people 
uh, coming to Canada because they thought it was going to expire. The IRCC, sorry, the minister ended up extending it the last week before it was going to expire. Uh, so we're expecting to see a potential similar bump between now and March 31st. And how do we handle that? You did mention, uh, you know, the, the success in, in trying to work uh, with different provinces and jurisdictions to try and, try and encourage people uh, to move to places in Canada where there, there will be work opportunities, where, where there potentially will be housing. But we know that, uh, you know, housing is, is, a, is in crisis right now uh, for everybody, newcomers and, uh, and established Canadians alike. So what does that look like if we're, if we're expecting uh, an even further influx here over the next two or three months? Yeah, I have to be honest to you. I, I, I think it's very concerning in terms of if we see a massive influx uh, of, of uh, war-displaced Ukrainians coming here. Even uh, during those peak times when they were arriving before, there was a lot of strain on the system uh, in terms of the uh, host accommodations, the uh, free hotels and things like that that were temporary accommodations uh, for the war-displaced Ukrainians then. But if we see an influx now when you know there are far fewer uh, host family volunteers, uh, there's a lot less infrastructure, We've seen a lot of, let's say, volunteer fatigue and fatigue in terms of donors. Um, I'd be very concerned if we see, you know, even 10% of those come. That would be, you know, if you think about there's already been 210,000 that have arrived so far. If we even got 10% of that 700,000, you know, that's almost like a 40% uh, increase in the population. So it really is concerning. and, And we're starting to put messaging out there about, uh, to these folks to really make a deliberate choice if they want to come to Canada to be aware of the realities of the, you know, housing, economic, and other situations. And I hate to throw the politics question out here when we only have, uh, Randall, about a minute remaining, but the president of Ukraine has said that uh, once the war ends, and, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the definition of that is when the evasion is quote-unquote over, he'd like to see displaced Ukrainians return home to help rebuild the economy there. At the same time, uh, those same Ukrainians are saying we'd like to stay in Canada permanently and are looking to the federal government or, or provinces to help facilitate that. Uh, where does Canada-Ukraine relations uh, enter into all of this? Yeah, it is a very difficult um, thing, needle to thread. Uh, we know that the minister has said there's geopolitical factors which are you know have to be considered in making this decision, but we ultimately feel like... Uh, it's a personal decision for the war-displaced Ukrainians. They have to do what's best for their family. But just because they're here doesn't mean that they will cease to support the rebuild, for example. 68% of those we surveyed said that they would want to continue to support uh, by remittances to family members or organizations that are supporting rebuild. And in fact, 17% said that they want to work for the Canadian companies that are actually starting to put their hand up to help with rebuild. And this is going to be the biggest rebuild effort since World War II. So there will be a lot of kind of corridors, cooperation, partnerships, uh, funds, uh, and, and kind of knowledge exchanges that will need to be kind of mobilized from Canadians, from the war-displaced Canadians that are, sorry, war-displaced Ukrainians that are here in Canada, and the organizations to help with this rebuild. So we feel it's a personal decision and something that they will continue to do so, whether they're on this side or that side. Randall, thank you very much for your time. It's an important issue. We appreciate it. Thank you for giving us the time. Thinking about Christmas off the top, and we'll get to our story about the retail shopping 
Uh, and not only the horror stories about retail shopping uh, over the Christmas season and what those retail workers go through, we'll still take your texts on that uh, and, and we'll share them with you as we go through the course of the program. Uh, but there is some stress that comes with the holidays and people feel it in different ways. Of course, not everybody celebrates Christmas, but even for those who do, uh, some do find it very, very stressful. So we thought we'd kind of go looking for some tips and some tricks to to help all of us uh, just kind of get through the holiday season uh, in a good frame of mind and enjoy things as much as we possibly can, even though in some circumstances it may seem like a very tall order. We're joined uh, to help us through this by Yona Buddy. He is the life coach and host of At Your Best, which you can hear on various chorus radio stations Saturday evenings. Yona, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Sid. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I, I'm really interested in this topic, and, and, and I think I'm, I'm, I count myself fortunate because I, I, I don't know that I, I feel a lot of stress around the holidays, but I know a lot of people who do, and I, and I really feel for them. And I'm sure everybody has their own story and their own reason and maybe their own personal tools to deal with it. But, but where does this come from, this sense of, of anxiety or stress as we get closer and closer uh, to the holiday season? Oh, first of all, great question, but it's a really broad one. I mean, the concept mm. of stress... You know, the concept of stress where, you know, we're referring to, you know, the concept of, or, or the, the stress we feel around the shopping experience, the stress we feel around buying the right thing for the right person, the stress we feel about what it's going to be like going to that family dinner again this year and, and, and what I'm going to have to tolerate and, and what kind of nonsense that's going to be like and how many times people are going to ask me if I'm married or not. Uh, you know, like those <laughs> kinds of questions. And, 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 and it's just and it's a time Honestly, Sid, it's a time where I think people feel obligated to walk around with a smile. And sometimes that's very stressful when you don't feel like smiling. So I think a combination of kind of having to be on and requirements of others, you know, in terms of the things we need to provide them with, the discomfort of socialization in either family settings or business settings or social settings where maybe you just don't feel so comfortable. And I think just the general hoopla of everyone sort of, you know, loving one another for 15 minutes. Um, is very difficult for a lot of people to cope with. Others thrive on it, but for many, it's a very stressful experience. Well, you know, I think that's a good way to put it, though, uh, Yona, because, uh, yeah, for even someone who loves Christmas and loves uh, seasonal gatherings and getting together with family, I think at some point for almost everyone, even those who really thrive on that, there has to come a point where, like you say, okay, enough. I can't paint this smile on my face for one minute longer. I just have to separate myself from the pack and unwind for a while. Yeah, it's like, oh, hold me to death, you know, like after after a while, it, you know, it, and it's not that it's an insincerity per se, you know, it's just that after a while, it just becomes um, you know, not everybody's comfortable in an ooey gooey experience. And, and for some, in terms of like, it's just being touched, you know, very, everybody's in love and everybody's just feeling great. And, you know, having, everyone's having a, a wonderful moment for many people, it's uncomfortable uh, because either they don't feel they deserve to be in that place or they don't have someone to share it with, or they don't feel like they're really happy and they're just faking it. And, you know, there's, so, you know, for everybody's, you know, for everybody's happiness, it, it, there's for sure someone who's having some stress and pain around, uh, that same experience. So I, I think the understanding of the sort of general commercialization of the time of year uh, makes this something that, you know, everywhere you turn, you're, you're, you're holiday seasoned out of your mind, you know, whether it's 
in the media or whether it's on a mall or on a billboard or, you know, walking down the street or putting the radio on that, you know, the, you know, media on that where they're playing music and, you know, even the, the satellite channels are, are, are pumping holiday stuff through that you might not want to listen to. It's almost like it's forced on us, I guess, to some degree. And I think that makes people uncomfortable. They just don't know how to turn it off sometimes and they feel stuck. And, and those changing personal circumstances, that, that's very interesting. Uh, I was reading an article within the last couple of months, and they were just talking to someone who had been in you know, a, a, a relationship that had lasted several years. So Christmas had always kind of unfolded the same way with the same partner, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. with the same sort of family groupings, with the same group of friends, the same mm-hmm. parties. And, and, and now all of a sudden, it wasn't that, you know, she wasn't necessarily still looking forward to Christmas or, or hadn't sort of soured on Christmas, but it was just, it was just the realization that this was going to be just very different this year. And she was unsure how she was going to be able to handle that. You know, it's like going to the family dinner, you know, Thanksgiving or the holiday season and someone decides to change grandma's recipe just a little bit. Uh, you know, we, we don't always we wise, don't, always <laughs> wise, right? Uh, you know, just a little, add a spoonful of something that they really shouldn't. And I think for a lot of us, we like, we like what we like. And, you know, if the cranberries come out this way every year, we look forward to it. And when someone changes it, we're a little off. So, I mean, I'm kind of making light of the, of that, of a more painful experience like you described. But what I'm suggesting here is that, you know, you're in the norm for a long time. People that are, out of relationships and, you know, as you suggested, divorce, separation, something like that, uh, or away from each other for business reasons, perhaps over uh, periods of time, people go away and, and, and end up having to be away for months at a time um, and not having what you're comfortable with. You know, like I'm sure you have a comfortable pair of socks at home or a pair of shoes or a sweatshirt that you've worn since high school or something that you never wear out of the house because it doesn't really fit, but you love it. So some, you know, <laughs> Because my wife that... won't let me wear it out of the house. <laughs> exactly. Otherwise, I, I would. Got... I know I got one of those too, but it, and, and for and for the better of us, by the way, you thank God we both. Yes, have oh yes, but it, he's got yeah, my yeah, best interest we, at heart. Believe me, I know, I know they'd embarrass the hell out of us otherwise. So, but but the reality is, you know, when when you don't when you don't have what you're used to, it's it's discom- it makes you uncomfortable. It just it, it's unsettling, right? You see, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I, you know, for me, having things as they're supposed to be, according to Yona, um, is very comforting. So, you know, my things are where they need to be, my, the, you know, where I go and how I get there, similar routes all the time. So if suddenly somebody puts a roadblock in the middle of the street and I can't turn down that road that I've been turning down for years, I get freaked out just a little bit. Not because I don't have another choice to take another road. But it's not the road I normally use. So when you're used to being with somebody and showing up with them on your arm or having that miserable argument on the way over for dinner, which I'm sure leads up to the divorce or separation anyway, um, and you're not used to that whole trauma and conflict and some people enjoy the chaos, if, if those pieces aren't there and that's what you're used to, the getting used to something new takes time, like breaking in a new pair of shoes, right? And I think that's kind of what you're describing perhaps. We were told at a very young age that one of the things you never want to talk about, well, there's two really, which would be politics and religion, but it seems now the (laughs) only thing people want to talk about when they get together is politics. How do we politely tell people that we just don't want to go there because there is no possible good outcome sitting around a table during the holiday season and arguing about politics? Well, what I tell a lot of my patients in my therapy practice is, is, is like this. 
You know, if you're entering a conversation with, you know, as it's coming out of your mouth, you're thinking to yourself that, that there's, I need to start to figuring out how to defend myself as I'm sharing it, then you're probably not sharing something you should be or with someone you need to share it with. So, you know, one of the pre-qualifiers, I think, of uh, having a discussion with somebody. So, for example, if I was going to have a conversation with somebody about politics, I'd want to have a conversation with somebody about politics that doesn't just have an opinion, but is educated and has experience and has done the necessary research and, and so on and so forth. Someone perhaps that I would have on my show or you would for sure have on your show, right? So um, what, I, what I'm thinking is that, you know, when you're worried about entering into conversations with people, you have to recognize that if they're open-ended conversations where there's no yes or no, win or lose, then somewhere along the table of 7, 12, or 14 family members, three people aren't going to agree no matter what you say. Even if you say it's sunny outside, and it is, three people are going to say, ah, it's a little overcast, it's not really so sunny, it's, right? So to get people to agree on any subject, number one, is, is a difficult thing to do. Psychologically, we don't generally want to all jump in. Some, some people abstain just for the sake of saying, no, not me, just to stand out, Right. So when you get into a conversation about politics where, you know, there's a it's heated about stuff that generally the people that share those conversations don't really know what they're talking about. And it's emotionally driven. So any conversation, buddy, that's emotion that potentially could be emotionally driven in terms of uh, idea, understanding. So someone being you know annoyed or feeling disrespected or not heard, you know, well, what do you mean he didn't do this? Well, I just told you that he did. So anything where, where emotion is going to get involved, I think we have to run and, and run the other way. And politics and religion, as you said on the, in the outset, I think is, are two of the real conversations that people just generally don't have at the family table because there's no way to win. And even when you win, you lose, right? There was a, a woman who was posting online, and she's done it more than once. I, I don't know who she is, so I can't, I can't share the information. It just kind of came to me as, as we were talking about this. And, and she posted a couple of times about her father who meets his, his friends. He's older, retired, meets his friends, I think, once a week or once a month at a pub. Uh, but he makes an agenda about what they're going to talk about. And at that time, I thought, well, that's a little over the top and a little formal. But as we're talking about this, I thought, you know, that might not be a bad idea for the holiday season. So we could agenda one. Item number one is we're going to talk about <laughs> who cooked grandma's uh, butter tarts this year and how did they turn out and <laughs> try, and, uh, try and get to a safe space early. Uh, you know, the other very real stressor for a lot of people and, and probably more so now than in, in previous years is finance. Is that something that we just can't escape? And I know that we can, we can talk about how uh, I think all of us love when we get really personal items rather than expensive items, but there's still, I think a lot of people suffer from these expectations that I need to spend money on the people that I care for. So great subject, and I'm and, and really glad you brought it up. Um, you know, we just talked about this uh, this past Saturday on my show, and, and what I suggested then and I suggest now is the same. Um, I, you know, you can – the experience of the giving and the taking is what this is really about. So, it, it, you know, I'm not sure there's a better buzz when you give a $100 gift than you get when you give a $25 gift. It depends on who's, who's providing it, who's, who's, who's doing the giving, and what the actual gift is. I'm a firm believer that a, that a smaller price point, but a product that requires or something that requires more time and attention in the selection and the detail of knowing that that would be really nice for the person you're buying it for, I think has great, a lot more value than just ordering the most expensive thing you can find on Amazon and saying, oh, wow, look what Uncle Billy bought, right? Um, mm -hmm. number, number one. Number two, I, I'm a big believer in experiences. I mean, that's what we're doing now with our grandchildren. 
they have so much of everything. They're fortunate children, and you know, um, so buying them new stuff is really kind of irrelevant. Uh, so what we're doing is we're, you know, my wife and I are sharing experiences with them. She takes them to a concert. I might take them to some kind of fair or, or exhibit, or we might do an overnight somewhere and, and go exhibit, you know, go challenge something or go, go do something fun. Um, so the, the a big believer in providing experiences. So maybe it's a question more of taking a couple of the, of, of your nieces and nephews or your kids or grandchildren or your loved ones, you know, the people from Christmas and you, you pay for everybody to, to have a, you know, a tobogganing out dairy where you bring some, some stuff you can, you know, some cocoa and stuff you can drink and snack and eat and, you know, and make that family experience uh, and take the time and the effort to put that together costs, you know, not a ton of money, uh, takes a ton of time and effort. But I think that the, the, the laughter and the giggle you get from something like that is far, uh, far greater than what any present you can open under the tree because that giggle goes away pretty quickly after the next present's open. I think that's a wonderful suggestion because I've experienced exactly that over the last couple of years. It was my wife that started doing that for saying to me and to our kids, I just want something that we can do together. And it might be Mm -hmm. as an entire family, or it might be just something that her and I can do. It might be something Mm -hmm. that she can go to this event with, uh, with this kid or, or to go have lunch with, with somebody. And it really, it really makes you think about what you want that experience to be. And then it is that much more meaningful when you're able to really pull it off and spend that time together. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, I'm sure you and I have both, you know, gotten the, by the way, it sounds like you, you married a real keeper. So I hope you're, you're not in you <laughs> I don't have any plans for anything new in the future. Cause she sounds amazing. Uh, but I, you know, it, it, that the sweater wears off after a while, right? You can only wear the same blue sweater the for, you know, for the first three or four times. It's fun and interesting. And then it's whenever you feel like wearing the blue sweater. But when you go on that experience, you go for the walk with her or you go skating on a Saturday evening and it's cool and it's chilly and you have hot chocolate and chestnuts somewhere and you just cuddle and snuggle and have that little peck on the cheek or whatever. That's memorable stuff, man. We'll remember that kind of stuff for years to come. Um, and the blue sweater's already given away to goodwill at that point. <laughs> Yona, appreciate your time. Always uh, some great insight and, and hopefully some, uh, you know, some useful things that people can uh, think about as, as we all you know, navigate this uh, busy holiday season. Appreciate your time tonight. Thanks, Sid. You're a legend. I was looking forward to being here with you tonight. Take care, my friend. But right now, you know, uh, we talked in, in a couple of segments already tonight about the high cost of living, whether that be housing and that's been an ongoing topic in this country for uh, many, many months, maybe at least a couple of years now, certainly since uh, the increase in interest rates. There's a, there's a crisis in affordable housing, uh, rental properties, you name it. And one thing that is also at the top of mind for a lot of people, I went to a, just a little holiday lunch with a few friends today. And normally you get together this time of year and you're updating each other on, on families and what are your plans for the holidays and what have you been up to? You know, just the normal things that people talk about when they get together. I don't ever remember until today one of these, uh, you know, these casual lunches among friends turning to the cost of groceries. But it did. And everybody had their own stories and their own, uh, you know, belly aching about how much everything seems to cost right now. And there are those that are trying to do something about it, how successful they can be, how difficult and nut that will be to crack remains to be seen. But to help us with this topic, we're joined by Keldon Bester. Keldon's the director of the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project. Keldon, welcome to the program tonight. Thanks so much for having me. Um, 
there's a lot of debate going on about what has caused or what the root cause of inflation has been in Canada. I know there are a lot of people listening right now that the first thing that comes to mind would be carbon tax or others that say that, you know, carbon tax on the day-to-day items that you purchase may amount to less than a 1% of what the, uh, the, the cost of that item might be. Uh, there are world prices. There was certainly a scarcity of uh, a lot of items, including food items. Uh, during COVID, we now have war in, in, in Ukraine and other areas of the world. Uh, what do you think is leading to the high grocery prices that people have been experiencing and continue probably for the foreseeable future to experience in this country? Well, you know, there are, of, of course, a number of factors, but I think you highlight an, an important point is we really need the data and the information to understand sort of on a you know, product by product basis, what is driving the increase in prices. But, you know, one thing that we do think is a, is a pretty consistent factor across this is the concentrated nature of Canada's, you know, not only grocery retail sector, you know, but further up the supply chain, that lack of competition, as in something that exacerbates or makes worse what might be more global trends. So when we talk about lack of competition, and I know uh, there are CEOs of some of the grocery chains in Canada would say that we have a very competitive grocery market, but what is it that you see is the root cause of this when it comes to competition or the lack of competition in this space in this country? Well, I think it's a symptom of a, you know, a very long history of not taking things like corporate consolidation, mergers and acquisitions, and having a diverse marketplace seriously. I think in Canada, we tell a story about, you know, we can only support so many uh, players in, you know, market X, Y, Z. But what we've seen in Canada from the 80s to today is actually a reduction in the number of players. And I think that that is a, is a, is a confounding factor for the cost of living increase we see today. And we've seen a lot of industries where consolidation has taken place over I guess, really, the last several decades. And the argument from the corporations is that without consolidation, uh, some of these businesses will will cease to exist and there will be even less competition uh, and less uh, likelihood that prices will go down than if we allow these companies to become bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, and I think that's a suggestion that we really need to interrogate. I go back to Roger Shaw a couple of, well, you know, not that long ago, really, where the Shaw family said, you know, they, they were just no longer interested in competing. Um, and when the option to exit through a merger or an acquisition is an easy one, I think that that becomes a much more attractive path as opposed to building and growing a successful business. So, you know, our law has carve-outs for when a business truly is failing, but I think that represents a small fraction of the merger activity we see in Canada. And so how many grocery chains do we have in this country right now? You know, nationally, you could say there's about five chains that represent 80% of the you know gross, retail grocery market. Um, but, but, the, but the key difference key differentiator there is that we don't shop for groceries nationally. You know, different markets have different players that are more prominent. So when you zoom into a community, especially a medium or small size community, 
you know, uh, individuals, consumers, um, you know, restaurants, you know, they may only have, you know, two or three real options, uh, depending on their, you know, access to public transit, access to a car, things like that, things that are particularly relevant for people more likely to be food insecure. And are we seeing that right now that, uh, and I think anecdotally, most people who uh, certainly live in smaller communities, those who visit smaller communities would say, yeah, it, uh, for years now, uh, and maybe, I don't, I'm not sure I know a time when I didn't think, sometimes I experienced it, sometimes I just assumed it was still the case that prices are higher in smaller rural communities. Yeah, you know, there is a, a component of that, which is related to, you know, transportation and, and how much can a market um, sustain. But again, I think this is makes it more important for us to think about, you know, what are the conditions that allow for players of all sizes to be successful, you know, taking us back to the supply disruptions of you know, COVID-19, because the large uh, retailers are vertically integrated into their wholesale and distribution. What we heard at the time was that independent grocers were effectively being denied supply and that that was affecting rural communities um, worse than, you know, larger urban areas. So again, here's an example where the sort of consolidation up and down the supply chain can end up disadvantaging communities that that just as much deserve equal access to um, to, to both the food, really. Uh, we we uh, established before. Obviously, regionally there can be some differences, but nationally we have about five companies that control. I, I think it was you said about eighty percent of of uh, grocery stores and grocery shopping in this country. What would what would one what kind of an impact would one more chain have? Do you think? Well, you know, there's this you know sort of straightforward price competition angle on it. But another way to think about it is, and I think particularly relevant as the, you know, bread price fixing investigation and litigation sort of plods on, is the value of a diverse number of competitors is that they disrupt the sort of collusive behavior that can form when competitors get, you know, for lack of a better term, a little too cozy. And so, you know, I think it's a tall task, but you know, introducing a new player, you know, potentially one with a different operating model in particular, um, you could imagine sort of an online first grocer or something like that. The real value I see is, you know, disrupting the relationships that may have formed and the sort of things that are taken for granted in an industry. Yeah, that would seem to make a lot of sense because if if, an, if another player came in with the exact same business model, the exact same kind of overhead and operating philosophy, it would be difficult to see uh, why they just wouldn't look at it and say, okay, if everybody's kind of in this range on a, a loaf of bread or uh, a, a you know a chicken, uh, then then why why not take that same profit margin uh, for us? But but have there been examples? Are there operators out there like that in other countries? And have other countries who maybe were going through the same things that we are in this country, uh, were they able to attract some of these operators and have they seen a significant lowering of their overall prices? You know, in terms of actively trying to attract grocers, I'm not aware of any particular examples, but, you know, in particular, I think the sort of cross-pollination of European brands of grocers, you know, some that are really focused on frozen food offerings, you know, ultra discount 
offerings with a you know sort of more targeted basket of goods you know these these have moved you know not only within countries but you know popping up in the u.s as well and again again this is the example you know we we find ourselves in this tough situation it is a tough situation to say you know how do we make our own markets more attractive for these players but what you do see is you know in other countries grocers pursuing different models that that create that that, that diversity that's that's so valuable from from competition not just from a price basis but really from an operating model perspective this seems to be a, a pretty tall order right now. If there were easy solutions, we may have seen them by now. Maybe it would have been government regulators that would have done stuff. And I know there are some efforts that are being made, including uh, what, what your group is trying to do and, and, and raising some awareness about this and, and kind of pointing out to people exactly what's at play here. But how optimistic are you uh, that we could see some, some real movement here in the foreseeable future? You know, what I'm more optimistic about is looking at taking a deeper look at the markets and the players we have today and uncovering conduct and allowing competition to flourish. You know, we, we've, we've, there's been reporting, we have evidence that, you know, grocers are, some grocers are restricted in the ways they can compete because of the dual roles of, you know, large grocers and landlords. You know, we look at a country like the UK who, you know, their competition authority took a basket of food goods that had seen the price rise dramatically and looked all the way up the chain and said, you know, where is this coming from and, and what's the conduct that's allowed this um, to occur if that is the case. And so when I look to sort of the months and, and year ahead, I think about, you know, the powers that the government is looking to introduce to our competition law to allow the Competition Bureau to go deeper and as well to put a stop to some of these we, you know, we call competitor collaborations or really anti-competitive agreements that might have held back even existing players in the market from from competing fully. And so, what are those limitations that exist now that that uh, that may need to be uh, alleviated or broken if we're going to really, as you say, kind of follow this uh, right up the chain to see where the where the issue is? You know, the first step is again as part of that process of, of diving in. Is you know, we don't know what we don't know. You know, things can be really considered business as usual and taken for granted. You know, the one example that's attracted a lot of attention, I think rightly so, is this idea of restrictive covenants. The idea that with a lease uh, for a piece of property, there could either be restrictions on what could be, um, whether or not a grocery store could occupy that property, or if there is a grocery store, you know, is it able to um, offer a full suite of goods. And, and the example is from the Halifax Examiner did a great report on, you know, why do Dollaramas near Sobeys not sell bread? You know, what, what came out of that reporting was that there was an agreement that Dollaramas in sort of overlapping areas, especially where Sobeys is also the landlord, you know, said that they were not able to compete fully. And so when we think about that one example, it's highly unlikely that that's only happening in Nova Scotia, and that that's the only extent of this kind of activity. And so this is what we need our regulators to really dig in and unearth. And that probably would not be an unusual covenant to have for a major anchor tenant in a property. The difference being, of course, is that everybody needs to buy food. It's not a luxury. 
Exactly. I think there are, again, we go back to these things, you know, what have we taken for granted that in better times may have been in the background, but when, you know, prices rise and when Canadians are in a tight spot, we, we need that competition more than ever. We need to take seriously the things that are holding back competition and, and really allow that to thrive for the benefit of Canadians. Uh, Kelvin, we appreciate it, and it'll be interesting to see where this goes because uh, I know there are a lot of people listening that are rooting for some sort of a, a positive outcome, positive meaning the lowering of the price of groceries here over the, the course of hopefully the not-too-distant future. We appreciate your time tonight. Thanks so much. And as promised, we're going to get back into the Christmas spirit here. We're going to talk about some of the toy crazes through the years. Here's one that comes to mind. Good parents my Cabbage Patch Kids. The Cabbage Patch my Kids. Each doll is different and you can pretend to adopt them. My baby has a real diaper. You can love and care for them like your very own. You're a pal. You're the only one. I love you. They're each one of a kind. They're Cabbage Patch Kids. You can give them all your love. Cabbage Patch Kids are each sold separately. Each doll comes with a pretend birth certificate and adoption papers from Coleco. It's not the only one, but Cabbage Patch Kids certainly over the years, at various times, I don't know if the, if that one was even just sort of a, a one-off where it's one year and it is, you know, hyper popular and every parent is scrambling to try and get it for their uh, children at Christmas time. I know that uh, at times they've been auctioned off like the Furby, like a Tickle Me Elmo, uh, where they don't retail for... In relative terms, all that much, but you could auction them off for hundreds, if not thousands of dollars for charitable causes because parents were so desperate to see their child smile on on Christmas morning. Uh, But surely there's got to be other ones that we're not even aware of over the years. And to help us with this, James Zahn, editor-in-chief of The Toy Book. James, welcome to the program. Hey, good evening. Thanks for having me. This is this is a, a great topic. You know, this is the time of year where we're thinking about these sorts of things. I don't know that you, we think about Cabbage Patch Kids or Tickle Me Elmos or Furbies or whatever the other fads through the years have been other than when it comes to this time of year. And I wasn't aware till this morning that there is a an actual documentary coming out on Cabbage Patch Kids. I don't think it has been released yet, but apparently will be released in the very near future. Where did this phenomenon start of every year there has to be that it gift or that one thing that everybody simply feels that they need to have? Interestingly enough, the industry doesn't seem to agree on when the first Christmas craze happened or what it was. But what we do know is that Throughout history, there have, of course, been popular toys every holiday season. But where the madness really started to set in came about towards the late 70s. And the first thing that really comes to mind is 1977 when Star Wars came out and Kenner could not get Star Wars toys into stores in time for kids to have them under the tree at Christmas. So they sold families an empty box with a certificate in it, and they called it the Star Wars Early Bird Package. And what it was was this flat box with a mail-in certificate, and you would give the kid that box, and the parents would mail in that, that piece of paper. And then in the spring of 1978, they would receive a box with 
four action figures in it. That was the first thing. But then you mentioned Cabbage Patch Kids, and of course we just heard that wonderful commercial. Um, that was 40 years ago. That was the holiday season from 1983, and Coleco bought in on the Cabbage Patch Kids idea from this guy named Xavier Roberts, who was sort of, and and to this day, sort of still is, like a mythical figure in the toy industry. Not too many people knew much about him other than he was this guy in a cowboy hat. and His company was Original Appalachian Creations. What he had done was uh, got inspired or depending on who you talk to, uh, he may have, quote-unquote, borrowed the idea for his dolls (laughs) from a local crafter. Um, He made these handmade dolls. He called them little people, but he couldn't market them as little people because Fisher-Price already owned that name. So through uh, licensing, they uh, came to Coleco, who released these dolls as Cabbage Patch Kids, and they gave it this backstory, this lore, that each one was special. It came from the Cabbage Patch And it introduced the concept of adoption to kids because each one was unique. It had its own name. It had its own look. And that added to the collectability and the scarcity that was largely driven by the grownups because it was like, hey, the kids have to have this, so I have to get it for them. And that was the first real example of people knocking each other over in the stores, you know, grandma's smacking people in the face with the doll and then people selling them out of the trunk of their cars. Yeah, I've never been involved in one of those stampedes, but I've certainly seen the footage of it. I'm still stuck on this notion of the Star Wars toys in 1977, parents buying empty boxes with certificates in them. I mean, that would be... I guess you do what you have to do, but uh, that would be like getting a box saying, you know, a week from now or two weeks from now, if you're lucky, you'll get your new pair of skates, or maybe by the time the snow melts, that bike will be available for you. Uh, but in the meantime, here's a picture of it. That, that's wild to me. Yeah, I mean, it was an ingenious idea to get around a problem that no one had a solution for. And you have to remember that at that time, kids had no internet. They barely had TV or VCRs, so the only way for them to experience Star Wars would have been on the big the big screen at the theater or eventually to get those toys. So however they knew they were going to get those toys. I don't believe you could sell a kid an IOU for Christmas today. And do these things have longevity to them, like Cabbage Patch Kids, for example? And I, I, I just don't know. Like, was it a one-year and done? Do they keep coming back year after year until eventually they just kind of fade away? So uh, year after year is definitely a thing. I distinctly remember my mom got me a Cabbage Patch Kid in 1984. It's one of the few toys I still have from when I was a kid. Uh, his name is Ollie. He was in a Chicago White Sox outfit. And uh, now he's in one of my kids' rooms somewhere. But uh, they kept bringing them back. And then, of course, they add things to them. Like they had record albums and music and TV specials. And Cabbage Patch Kids never went away. But the brand through licensing um, went through a ton of companies. And now they are offered by a company called Jazzwares. It's the same company that uh, makes Squishmallows. But there have been many other crazes over the years. And I think of like uh, around the same era, you had the Atari 2600 a couple of years earlier. Then the mid 80s, you had the Nintendo Entertainment System. 
And the Sega Master System was kind of a, a big thing with the video games. Um, early 90s, um, one that really comes up two years in a row, 92 and 93, The Talk Boy by Tiger Electronics that was inspired by Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. It was a product. I don't think I've heard of that one. It was made for the movie, but then kids had to have it, so they came out with it, but it didn't function exactly like the one from the movie, so it disappointed kids. So a year later, they tried again, and they came out with one that was more authentic to the film. That was hard to get. Uh, 95 would have been Buzz Lightyear from um, Mm -hmm. Toy Story was really hot. And then you entered the late 90s. You had this huge explosion of collectible things and crazes. Uh, Beanie Babies and Furby. Furby's back this year for its 25th anniversary. Um, But you can't talk about Christmas craze without talking Tickle Me Elmo. And what I think was fascinating about that, and this was was 1996, and I have a unique perspective on it because I worked for Walmart at the time. So I actually, at ground level, saw people chasing each other for Tickle Me Elmo And that craze was so similar to those who had lived it, to the Cabbage Patch Kid thing, but then at the exact same time, sort of art imitating life, the movie Jingle All the Way came out that season, came out November of 96. So you had Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sinbad on the big screen as dads chasing each other, tackling people, trying to get an action figure called Turbo Man. So that was sort of unfolding fictionally at the cinema, but at the same time, you had people really doing that for Tickle Me Elmo. Uh, it is an interesting phenomenon when these things happen. Beanie Babies were, were another one. I don't even know when those first burst onto the scene. That seems like, was that a 90s thing? It was in the 90s, and uh, they're actually on a big anniversary run right now from Ty Inc. Um, They weren't necessarily a Christmas craze, but they were an all-over craze. And there's multiple films about that. There's two separate documentaries I can think of. Plus, there is a uh, fictionalized account that um, was just uh, made into a movie for Apple TV+. Um, so that all happened. You had Tamagotchi at about the same time. That was 1997. The first run of Pokemon cards was around that oh, same yeah. time. Yeah. And then when you shift into the turn of the century, a whole bunch of stuff, you know, more recent too. Hatchimals in 2016 from Spin Master was a big deal. Um, about a year later, Fingerlings from Wowee were a big thing. Um, we've had we've had several of them that have come up. And then uh, some to a lesser extent, too, like Zuzu Pets was big one year. Um, and, and really, it tends to be the kids are like the catalyst, you know, the spark for the mm-hmm. craze. But the grownups really take it to a new level because they're the ones that either look at it as, I need to get this for the kids in our lives, or they want to profit from it and they want to and take that and resell it Me. teach to say her name Noodle. play games Pink bab. Oh. and love you oh. <laughs> your furby sneezed Achoo. and gave mine a cold
Well, we're talking Furbies and Beanie Babies and Tickle Me Elmos and Cabbage Patch Kids and all of those sort of toy crazes through the years. And helping us navigate has been James Zahn, Editor-in-Chief of the Toy Book. And just before the break, James, we were talking about, you know, the, the, the two kinds of, I guess, customers, clientele, target audience for these sorts of toy crazes. One, of course, are the kids. That's the purest uh, form of uh, of of receiving for these uh, these toys but the other are collectors and those that are looking to make a quick buck if they can get their hands on some of these whatever that latest craze is and i've always been curious if did did they hold their value is there money to be made if you picked up a bunch of cabbage patch patch kids somewhere along the way or tickle me elmos so this is this is kind of a interesting space you're talking about because in in mentioning collectors, you sort of added the third element to this. So you've got kids, you've got collectors, and then you've got the flippers and the resellers and the speculators. Mm. The toys from the 80s, or even before that, because toy collectors have been around forever. Even go, go back to the 50s, think of things like Howdy Doody or Lone Ranger or whatever. People were collecting this stuff for years. But the main thing with toys is that they are designed to be played with by children so most of those toys were taken out of their packages they were well played well loved with they had wear and many of them didn't survive so if you had a mint sealed pristine cabbage patch kid or anything else from that era because there were some other big brands in the early to mid-80s, like Transformers, My Little Pony, uh, Rainbow Bright, Strawberry Shortcake, Masters of the Universe, G.I. Joe, all of which are actually either still around or back this year, because retro is hot. But if you had those originals in their original boxes and they looked like they were brand new, yes, absolutely, tons of value. Now, fast forward to present day, if someone's out there scooping those up, the likelihood is they could flip them for a modest profit now, but if they held on to them, they would probably not hold much value at all for the simple fact that now you have a whole generation of people hoarding this stuff that want to get it, that want to keep it, and if they're all just buying it to be in the package, then they're all just in the package. It's not scarce like the stuff from 40, 50 years ago where the majority of them were out there and got played with by kids. So Yeah, that's that, that, that case, sounds a lot like know? that sounds a lot like the uh, sport card collectible industry where, you know, people, you know, bemoan the fact that their their moms, you know, threw out all their Wayne Gretzky rookie cards or their, you know, whatever, you know, the case may be or they just happen to put them in the spokes of their of their of their tires on their bicycle and oh what could have been and then once you get to probably around the 90s everybody started collecting and very difficult to get real value out of a lot of them and yeah and now you've got these guys doing like box breaks on tiktok and stuff to see which which player they're pulling and what happens it immediately goes in an acrylic slab and it's never touched by human hands again is there any trend to this is there any way to predict what the next big thing will be when it comes to toys Uh, Everybody in the toy industry would love to say yes, and the reality is no, because 
you never know what's going to resonate with kids until it gets out there. And you could do all the research in the world, all the product development, and think you have a hit, and it flops. And conversely, you could have something that seems so simple or, you know, just like it's it's out there and it's well-intentioned, and then every kid's got to have it, and you end up with a product shortage. Um, so it, it's really it's really hard to put a, a finger on. And the other element to that is that now uh, the days of that singular hot toy, like the Cabbage Patch Kid, in that case, it was like every kid, boy, girl, didn't matter. They had to have a Cabbage Patch Kid. Nowadays, um, like even with what we do, we'll, we'll make like hot 20 lists on our consumer publication, The Toy Insider, because you pick 20 toys because what's right for one kid isn't going to be right for another one. So it feels like that day of the singular hot toy might be behind us, but there's always new stuff out there that's going to connect with a new audience every season. Right. It's interesting stuff. So I guess we'll just have to see how it plays out uh, in the coming year to see what we're talking about this time next year. James, thanks for your time tonight. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Right now we want to talk about hobbies. Do you have a hobby? Do you have several hobbies? Would you like a new hobby? Are you afraid to take up a new hobby? Are you intimidated to learn something new? Maybe you've always wanted to play guitar or any other instrument. Can you pick it up once you get to the age of 40 or 50 or 60 or beyond? I think probably, and off the top of my head, the answer would be yes. But do we learn differently? Is it more difficult? And why sometimes are we maybe a little bit more reluctant as we age to do those sorts of things? When we're young, if we decided when we're 15 years old that we want to learn how to play this sport, we go and we learn how to play that sport. If we wanted to really, we're serious about picking up our instrument, we'd find a way to pick up that instrument and learn how to play it, find someone that could teach us how to play it. And sometimes maybe as adults, obviously we get, we, we're busy. You get tied up with work and family and all those other things. Uh, but are we really taking enough time to reap the benefits that can come with having those really fulfilling hobbies? Uh, we're joined now by Matthew Zawetz. Zawatsky, excuse me for mispronouncing your name, Matthew. Uh, Matthew's Associate Professor of Health and Psychology at the University of California, Merced in Merced, California. Matthew, welcome to the program. Hi, Sid. Thanks for having me. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I, I'm always curious about hobbies. I, I have a few of them, but uh, I would say that I probably fall into this category where sometimes I'm intimidated to try new things and some of that, I think, comes with age, and some of it maybe comes with some insecurity about whether I would be good at something if I pick it up a little bit later in life. Uh, but I want to start by by asking you maybe about what what are some of the benefits of hobbies? Because not everybody has them. I know people that will just flat out say, I don't have any hobbies. I work, I go home, but I don't have any hobbies. Yeah, uh, you know, and I struggle when I hear that because hobbies are probably the most approachable thing that we can do in our lives to nudge us in the right direction every day to get to be in a better mood, to make us happier and calm. Um, a lot of my research is about this idea that so much of the stress isn't the things that we experience in the world, it's the stuff we carry in our head with us every day. So ruminating about that fight and what we did wrong, worrying about what's going to come in the future. 
And hobbies have this beautiful ability to distract us and just get us outside of our heads just for a moment. And maybe we forget about what we were ruminating and we can move on. And another thing with hobbies, they're great about helping us feel like we can do something, to have that kind of confidence that we're effective and that we can make a goal and achieve it. And so these are kind of some of our big goals as humans is to feel good, to connect with others, to get our goals done. Um, and since so someone says they don't have hobbies, they're missing out on this cheat sheet to happiness. And I think it could pro- it can run a, a really wide gamut of really, I mean, some people can spend hours reading and they, ju- they just love it and they, and they, and they get, they just get a lot out of it, whether it's just, you know, peace of mind or they're learning new things with what they read. Others, it might be a physical activity. Others, it might be, you know, they might fly fish or they might knit or they, whatever it is, different people find different benefits uh, out of all of these things. Yeah, you're exactly right. And there's no one path to getting the benefits. And for you, it might be watching TV. And for me, it might be gardening. And we all get that same benefit of distracting ourselves, calming us down, connecting with others. And when you think about picking up a new hobby, you know, we want to do the right one or the best one. And frankly, there isn't. It's the one that's available to us. It's the one that we want to try. There, there's no magic cure here. It's not that difficult. Now, are, are the benefits that we talk about, I think, you know, we can, as humans, just kind of go, oh, yeah, like I, I get that if you're, uh, you know, if you're fishing in a mountain stream, yeah, there's probably some benefit that's going to come to that. And you can kind of leave the world behind and just immerse yourself in that natural environment or, or lose mm-hmm. yourself in a great book or go to the movies or, or collect whatever it is that, that you're interested in. But, but is there a way or have we been able to, to measure whether it's, it's, it's physical health benefits, psychological benefits from these sorts of activities? Yeah, it, and it's all of those things, and you gave up some really great examples. So if we just imagine the difference of watching a movie at home versus going to a theater to watch that same movie, it's in some ways the same stimulus. It's the same you know, film we're, we're appreciating, but the context changes, and it's a matter of degree. So at home, I might be distracted by what else is going on. It took little effort, but going to theater is a lot of more work, and then maybe I'm more engaged. I paid for it, so I might be more invested. And so there's some of the, the kind of what we want to give into that experience. We want to get out of it as well. And, you know, hobbies have this great, you kind of brought up, so what are the benefits? You know, I described a lot of the psychological ones, but a lot of these hobbies do have this hidden benefit of doing that physical activity. And even just walking or moving to meet people creates the activity of getting your blood flowing and helping to, you know, stimulate your memory formation by giving you a break from thinking about what you're doing. Um, and so there's just a lot of benefits that come with being physically active around our, our hobbies. And I think just in listening to you uh, just now, I think you've already helped maybe some people overcome one of the barriers that we hear when we talk about hobbies, which is people that might say or might think and might, you know, really honestly feel, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for a hobby because they think of, uh, uh, of, you know, I need to spend hours learning, uh, photography or to play an instrument or to do whatever it is. But, but it could be something very simple depending on the individual and maybe it grows over time and maybe it doesn't. Yeah. We could think of them as micro hobbies, you know, and even playing a game on your phone or watching a short YouTube video in a, in a break between meetings or, 
You have a five minutes to yourself before the kids need something else. But just taking that time helps to write yourself a little bit. You know, I often like to think that we go to a physician and they give us a prescription and we get some medicine and hopefully take it and we recognize the value of that and that we need to be giving ourselves a prescription to do our hobbies, realizing just how much benefit it can have just to take care of ourselves a little bit. And it makes us better at our jobs. It makes us better caretakers to our family, better partners to the ones we love. And so it's not just selfish, even though it might feel that way, but it actually makes us better for those around us. I'm, I'm curious, do you, would you ever prescribe a hobby to someone that came to you, maybe struggling uh, in their life and say, hey, you need, to, you need to find something to take your mind off things or, or to get your mind working in a different way? Oh, that's one of the first things I do for everyone is whenever they're stressed, I've said, when's the last time you took care of yourself? And usually it's like, okay, so what are the things that you love? So Sid, to turn it back on to you just for a second, you said you have some hobbies. What are they? Uh, fishing, photography, camping, anything really to do with outdoors, reading. I love to read. Uh, mm-hmm. Those are the ones that would come sort of top of mind, I guess. And for one of them, like for photography, I really had to make a concerted effort because I'd given that up for, oh, 25 or 30 years. And I was that person that said, I just don't have the time. And then I just made myself uh, go buy a new camera outfit and and get back at it. And it's uh, it's one of the better things I think I've done over the last probably three or four years. Yeah. And I, I hear that from a lot of people when we talk about hobbies and sort of in these conversations, again, just giving that permission to try it, that they say, I'm so glad I, I found it. And they, they don't always find it the right one. Maybe they tried photography and they loved it as a teenager, but no longer. But if you try a few things, you usually, you know, get a hint of what's going to work for you. And people are so thankful for getting back to the things that help them connect with themselves. And, you know, one of the things I think that was maybe a barrier for me at one time of sort of getting back into it is because when I, I kind of stopped doing it. It was still film mm-hmm. and slides and those sorts of things. And then, you know, you're kind of watching these things progress and it seemed, it seemed quite intimidating to, uh, to get back into it. And it turns out that you go at your own pace and, you know, you, there, you know, there's this thing called the internet that you can look things up and there are a lot of people that you can ask questions if you want to. And, and that the, the learning was probably as much, if not more fun than just getting out and taking you know, the same picture that I might've taken 20 or 30 years before, uh, that, that, that learning curve was actually part of the fun. Absolutely. And do we yeah, learn differently then, though? Know, I think you're right, which is if we think we're going to fail at it or we're not going to be as good, that is going to be the barrier that prevents us from starting. And that's the, the biggest thing to move past. Mm-hmm. Finding time, you can do that, but sort of getting over the, I don't want to waste this moment. You know, that's hard, and I think people, that's a lot of barriers for people for trying it. I'm curious as to whether we we learn differently. <laughs> I don't know how to put this as we as we get older, and is that part of the intimidation factor where I assume that if I wanted to play the guitar when I was 15, I probably could have picked it up relatively easily. Now, maybe I couldn't, maybe I'm just not musically inclined, (laughs) but I really feel that if I wanted to pick it up later in life, the odds would be much slimmer that I could ever really master, whether it's, you know, guitar or another musical instrument or, or pick, pick a hobby that is kind of along those lines where there's some dexterity involved. There's some real, some real, 
you know, mental learning that has to take place. How do we have to adjust our expectations as we get a little bit older and are looking for those new hobbies or do we? Yeah. I mean, it's an unfortunate reality that our bodies were probably designed to live 30 or 40 years so that we can have children (laughs) and pass on our genetics. And if we could help them get older, great. And that's what happens with our brains is we hit our peak for thinking and learning and especially the idea of like processing speed. So how fast do you learn something? How fast can you take information? And that starts to decline at 40. And when we hit 60, a lot of research suggests that it declines even faster. But what's amazing about that research is that we see, it feels like it's inevitable, but some people decline faster than others. And the people who decline last, the ones who stay active and sharp are the ones who hold on to their hobbies, constantly challenging themselves to learn things. And so sure, we might not be as good as we were when we were 15, but we can still learn a whole lot. But right. I think you're right. We, we can't just pretend that it's going to be perfect. And if we, have that perspective of I'm not as good as I was when I was 20. That's sort of like a lost perspective of like what I'm not able to do. And that's dangerous and it's damaging for us. And instead we need to have that game perspective of yesterday I didn't know anything, but today at least I know how to do this. And that's pretty cool. That's amazing. Let me see if I can learn one more chord or, you know, read a new genre of book or learn a new language and be able to say a few words in a different language than I couldn't earlier. You know, if we can adopt the small successes, they do build up fast, and we can learn a lot. Are there, you know, trends when it comes to hobbies that you notice, things that maybe people are grabbing towards uh, nowadays? That You know, when, when I was a kid, I mean, we didn't really, as a kid, you don't really think of anything as a hobby. It's just something that you no, like to do. If, if somebody asked me what a hobby was when I was a kid, I would say, well, I guess some people collect stamps or collect coins. Uh, I, I wouldn't think of really anything else as a quote-unquote hobby, but are there trends in terms of what people gravitate towards nowadays? Well, the biggest one, I, I would be remiss to not mention it, is pickleball. It is exploding oh, yeah. <laughs> across all levels. And I think that's a, a great example of, you know, I apologize to all the pickleball people out there, but sort of lowering your expectation about what your body needs to do. And you're not sprinting all out. It's different than tennis. It's less of a grind on your joints. But it's still really active and really demanding and and incredibly fun. And so a lot of people have embraced that sport because you can still socialize, still have a challenge, and still get a good workout, but in a way that is more appropriate for your body as you age. Um, yeah, that is a good one. Trends? I've seen a lot of people oh, yeah. doing that that probably wouldn't have, have taken up tennis. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, no, I, I agree. You can hear it too. You know, walk by parks and that, that clank, you know, it's a <laughs> telltale sign. I, I don't know if this is a hobby, but pets have become a big thing. Uh, a lot of people ran out and got some kind of pet during the COVID shutdowns. And most people held on to their pets. They, they didn't get rid of them. And some people think about taking care of their pets as a hobby, especially I know a lot of people have Instagram pages for their pets and TikToks for their pets. And so sort of the curating that is one or another trend. And I think one last big one is that we, we are, there's trends away from digital. And so there seems to be a, a desire to get back to doing things with your hands. And so that's like knitting and doing embroidery or, kind of doing calligraphy or lettering on pages, there, there's a growing interest in trying to just 
be in the real world outside of that digital world as an escape. Right. And, and you know, the pet one is an interesting one because whether we, we think of it as a hobby or not, there's certainly no mistaking that people who have pets, the just that, you know, coming home after a long day at work and having a pet greet you at the door, uh, there are a lot of uh, mental uh, benefits to that, I am sure. Matthew, thank you for your time tonight. It's It's been great. We do appreciate you joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So we've referenced uh, over the course of the show at various times today, the Christmas season, uh, the holiday shopping experience. Uh, we've talked about toys and what might be, you know, the latest trends this year, those sorts of things. We've talked about holiday stress. Uh, and we've also referenced not only the shopping experience, but the shopping experience from the perspective of the retail employee. And we're joined on the program right now by Triette Duong. He is a co-owner of Montpetou, which is a, a Vancouver neighborhood uh, cafe located in the neighborhood of Fairview. Fairview. Uh, Triette, welcome uh, to the program. We appreciate you joining us this evening. Hi, nice to uh, meet you over air. <laughs> How are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for asking. Uh, uh, we wanted to have you on. Um, I was reading an article I, I came across, and uh, there was a quote of yours that, that, that really struck me because we knew we wanted to talk about uh, the shopping experience from the perspective, or one of the perspectives would be from the, uh, the person that works in retail. Uh, so as the co-owner of this cafe, one of your models is its customer service not customer servants. And that really struck me. Uh, how do you live this and how do you apply this with your employees and your customers on a day-to-day basis? So coming, I've actually never worked in hospitality until we opened Mompi 2 in 2021. Um, so when I opened this place with my partner, we knew from the get-go that there were certain standards and values that we want to uphold, especially for our team members, because ultimately we know that our team members are the ones who are representing us, representing the brand. So we, we want to make sure that they feel comfortable when they're at work. And through all the interviews that I would have with candidates when we were hiring and to this day as well, the one underlying message that I get from them is that typically the hospitality industry doesn't set them up for a backbone. So it's often just getting walked all over or if they escalate to a manager, their manager often are the ones that are also pushing them into the fire and being like, oh, just just suck it up, just deal with it and not really giving them any tools and resources to actually deal with it um, and to actually be able to draw a line. Um, So that's where we had a big Um, we disagreed with that type of training. So we knew from the get-go that we had to approach this differently. So we we have a different training style, I would say, than typical hospitality or retail um, stores. And and this probably goes back to that old saying that the customer is always right. And I know as businesses, everybody wants to serve their customers to the best of their ability, make sure they have a wonderful experience. But but there is that line where someone is rude or condescending or or outright abusive to an employee. And and I think you're right. I think in some cases, uh, you know, people have just been taught either directly or just through osmosis over the years that you need to take a more, you know, almost just a more passive approach and yeah. not not really stand up for yourself and hopefully it'll just kind of solve itself and they'll go away. Yeah, exactly. And like one thing that I tried to make very clear to even with my interview a few days ago is that this is not 
us trying to like become combative or saying like, oh, we need to put up a fight with every single incident. What we focus on is being able to anticipate what's going to happen. So for example, we know that anywhere in business that December is the craziest month. So we're going to anticipate crowds. We're going to anticipate lineups. We're going to anticipate maybe a slower service time. So for our team, it's how do we approach that? So for example, with crowding, okay, the minute it happens, we have strategies to make sure that we're eliminating the crowding by moving some people outside or designating certain waiting spaces, stuff like that. Or if there's a lineup, then making sure that we have a second person on till to get the line over with quicker. Um, Or if we have someone who's new on till to just really make light of the situation and be like, hey, sorry, I'm going to be a little bit slower. It's my first day. Because being transparent like that and being more proactive with our communication and taking that proactive approach is where we thrive as opposed to when we find that you go to places that are taking a more passive approach and waiting for the guests to either become irritated or for the guests to be the ones who are pinpointing the issue. That's where we find that it does get a little bit heated or abrasive. That's interesting you do that because I know that, you know, I've always appreciated if someone will, will do exactly that, just say to me, look, we're a little bit slammed right now, so it may take a little bit longer. Are you okay with that? And I don't ever remember saying no. Uh, you know, it's just it's just a fact of life. In all of our jobs, we get overwhelmed sometimes, and we ask our clients and our customers to be understanding of that. Um, and so, but what does that look like in practical terms? Like, obviously, you said this is not about you know, being aggressive and in your face and pushing back really hard. But it is about, um, you know, I guess setting some boundaries and, and, and being able to know that, you know, your employees have your backing to essentially stand up for themselves and not be treated poorly all the time. Mm-hmm. So coming again, coming from the corporate background, there's this concept called psychological safety that we um, really carry out in our team. So the psychological safety method is basically letting our employees know that if they made a mistake or if something happened, that they're, they feel comfortable enough to come to a manager to express what happened, to seek feedback or seek guidance, as opposed to coming to a manager that's going to even push you even further or coming to a manager that's going to use that against you or somehow undermine you even further. Um, so that aspect gives our team members already that solid foundation to work off of because they know that even if they try to de-escalate something or if they were to encounter a negative situation, they know that they can lean on their manager and not have their manager corner them even more. So I think that's also a very important part because interview after interview that I have with candidates, this underlying message of, oh, when this happens, my manager would tell me to just suck it up. And I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't really give you any confidence and it doesn't give you a chance to have that critical thinking And that's also a problem for my partner and I, because this is a private business. The entire store is made from our savings. So when our team members don't have the ability to critically think, that is where we're going to see wasted money because someone could easily just be like, oh, you don't like your item? Like, we'll remake it and we can remake it five times. And if you're not having that critical thinking skills and you're not asking smart questions, then we're going to draw that line. If this is a problem that the guests created or it's their problem, well, we're not going to have to pay for that. Like that's something that they'll have to recover themselves. And do you find that helps diffuse the situation? I often wonder when, when people take a more passive approach and, 
you know, in your words, if, if, if they've always been told, just suck it up and, and go with the flow and hopefully it'll resolve itself. But in some ways it would almost seem that that would, that would give that rude or condescending customer permission to, to continue down that road where maybe if someone is a little bit more, again, not aggressive, but just maybe a little bit more confident and a little bit more transparent and assertive, it, it, it might help to, you know, kind of shake that person into thinking, okay, this isn't, this isn't the right thing. I, I need to back off here. 100%. And because again, like we're not, I feel that people often put this value on money. That means that they can hold that dollar amount over someone or like, oh, because I'm a paying customer, I get to do and ask whatever I want from you. And to us, that's not correct because there's no amount of money that should dictate anyone's, anyone basically. So just because you're a paying customer, it doesn't give you the permission to overstep. And especially when it comes to anything around harassment or discomfort with our team members, where it's beyond a professional transaction, that's where we draw the line. So there's a professional line that we draw. And if anyone tries to cross that, that's what we don't allow, especially in our own store, because we see that store as our home. So if we're not going to allow someone to be disrespected in our home, we're not going to allow that in our store. And, and do you see a noticeable difference during the holiday season? Uh, we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier this evening where, um, yes, it's busier, but but is it is it the busyness? Is it the season? We, we know that some people just feel overwhelmed and stressed themselves during the holiday season, but would if if you had a comparable... Uh, line up at your cafe during the holiday season as you would in September. Is there is it a little more tense at this time of year? Is it is it noticeable that this is the holiday season and and people are on edge? It is noticeable. Um, I would say December is the equivalent of a summer for us. However, the big difference is in the summer we have we actually have more space. Um, because we have an extended patio, we have more outside seating. So the crowding itself and people tend to be a little bit more relaxed. Whereas December, you're still getting that crowding, you're still getting that same foot traffic. But we do see more stress um, just because, you know, like anyone, even for myself personally, December is such a hectic month. It's year end, there's big holidays, family visiting, or you're visiting somewhere, there's all these festivities going on and then there's also the added pressure of work and added pressure with traffic so i feel like everything is just overwhelming but for us we anticipate that so in november we already knew that going into december we're going to see these behavioral changes so our team had to really be equipped with the tools that they need to be able to adapt to these behavioral changes in terms of crowding or less patience um, people getting a little bit more antsy so that's something that we basically looked forward to. So for us, even though we noticed mm. it, it's a big problem. Have you ever gotten to the point where you can, like if, if, if I walk in the door of your cafe at this time of year, can you kind of look at me, size me up and go, uh-oh? We basically, so with our proactive communication, pro, we call it proactive engagement. If you were to walk into our door I can pretty much guarantee you at least one of our team members will be already reaching out to you be like, hey, come on over here. I'll help you. Or, hey, how's it going? Are you hungry? 
something like that. So that we want to basically steer the conversation right away. We want to be the ones who are driving that conversation to feel you out. What is this guy in for? Is he hungry? Is he looking for just a quick bite? Is he looking to buy a present for someone? Or is he here because it's his first time? So asking, again, having that proactive engagement and paired with asking smart questions will give us the ability to drive and steer that conversation so we can have a better feel of how much about us do you know? Why are you here? What are your intentions? Well, it certainly seems, uh, and you must see that it works. I'm sure I'm sure your customers themselves probably appreciate this approach that you take. It, it definitely works. And that because we're in a neighborhood, um, Monday to Friday, we always say it's our solid regulars um, that come in because people either live down the block or work across the street. So uh, me and my partner, when we come in between the Monday and Friday, we can pretty much name everyone who comes through those doors. Um, so they also have given us that feedback because they appreciate when our team members are the ones who are reaching out, who are proactively engaging with them, because a lot of times we might be even asking questions that they didn't think about or that they didn't know they wanted answered. So that ability for us to drive that conversation is quite important because the whole thing with for us is the customer is not always right because they don't always know what they want. So that's part of the, the, the reason where things get heated is because if the customer is wanting something, but the service staff is not providing that answer or is still feeling that out, that is where you're going to be misaligned. And Trade, I'm always curious when we get a chance to talk to a small business owner such as yourself. Uh, just a general question. Is business good? Has it been a good year? How are you doing? We're doing good. So, again, being in a, in a neighborhood, we rely a lot on the neighbors. Um, so we get solid support from them. We're considered a COVID baby because we opened up in the middle of winter, in the middle of 2021, middle of pandemic. Um, so a lot of our regulars are the neighbors. And because we're a mixed concept business as well, it kind of gives us more room to explore so there's pros and cons, but this year we definitely have learned a lot because of our previous two years. Um, so we have more reference points as opposed to our first year where we basically opened up without knowing what we're expecting. So that was where we did encounter more issues, um, especially because people don't understand who we are, what we do, why are we there. Um, so we use a lot of our learning experiences from the first two years. So when this year rolled around, we had better training because we knew what we're expecting. We knew what the previous two Decembers looked like. So we know what we're expecting. Well, we do appreciate it. It's good to hear that things are going well, Tria. Thank you for your time tonight. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for your call. Talking retail horror stories, for lack of a better word, and we've had some good ones as well. Not every interaction is uh, is negative, and uh, there probably is a small percentage of customers that give you know the rest a bad name. Isn't that true in almost all walks of life? Uh, and we just spoke with an owner of a cafe in Vancouver, but we wanted to go right to the source of someone who currently works retail. Now you probably know Talia Miller as the technical producer of this program. Uh, you may not know that she also has a second job uh, in the retail industry. And Talia, I, I, I'm curious as to what your experience has been. Is do you, do, you, do you see yourself in some of your experiences and some of the stuff we've been talking about this evening? Oh, absolutely. It was giving me a little PTSD. I'm not going to lie to you. It was like flashing back to my very first job of working in a movie theater and people... 
given me some attitude about how long it was taking to scoop them some popcorn or get them through the line. I didn't put enough butter. I put too much butter on it. You can imagine some of the horror stories that came out of that place. And so what sort of tools do you develop over the years to deal with it? it because it, it's not going away, it doesn't seem. No, but I have found it was the worst when working in food service. You know, and I do believe that you should be nicer to the person that's between you and your coffee, but it's been worse there. I think you have to develop a little bit of a thick skin, you know, let it roll off your bag because I feel if a customer is being rude to you as the employee, I'm like, you know what? Maybe their day's not going super hot. I like try to make, give some uh, like grace to them. Maybe they stepped on Lego in the morning, but if it's a recurring problem with the same person... I feel like something's up. You know what I mean? I do. I, I just, I'm never quite sure how, like if I was in that position, how I would deal with it. Because mm-hmm. in the back of your mind is that sort of mantra of the customer is always right and I just need to suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Sometimes that's the better route to go. Um Usually I try to do that, you know, and if they're a recurring customer, I can kind of figure out the more times I deal with them that, okay, here's a good way that like, I know what they want. You know, you can kind of get the transaction over with quickly, but I did actually have to press back a little bit earlier in the week on a customer who had been not super nice to me, not super nice to the other staff, like to the point the other girls have said to me, can you please take this person and like help them out? So I pushed back on Monday a little bit, and lo and behold, the next time I saw this person, they were a lot nicer to me. So I consider oh, really? that a win, you know? Well, I, that, sorry, go ahead. That, no, I'm going to say that does sound like a pretty big victory, especially Thank when you, you get to the point where, where you know, one employee is passing off a customer to another employee uh, who's passing it on to another employee. And mm. I'm wondering if the customer at some point clues into that and goes, wait a minute. I'm the problem. I'm being a jerk here. Yes, yes, it's me. I'm the reason they're having to do this. Yeah, I hope so. You know, like, I mean, we all have had those days. I can think of a few times I had gone like snappy and it's always because something else was going on in my day. And I usually try, try to not let that get to me. Like, why am I going to take this out on another person who's interacting with me for like five seconds? But I will say, Sid, like, Kindness goes such a long way. I remember being cashed out by, I think they were about 16, probably their first job. And they said to me, hey, how's your day going? I was like, oh, it's great. How's yours? And they looked at me stunned being and said to me, no one has responded to me all day. And I just thought, how sad no. is that? Right? Yeah, they said that to me. And I just, it broke my heart. It absolutely shattered it. And it was during the holiday season too. Who doesn't have time to just return the favor and ask somebody how their day's going? I don't oh know. My goodness. I have Particularly no idea. when when their job and they're going out of their way just to make sure that you have a good experience shopping at their store. Right. Well, that's that's good on you for 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 doing it and uh and I agree that's kind of sad that uh uh that they had to say that you were the first one all day that had really even acknowledged them in that way. Wow. So sad. And do you find, and I know we're very short on time here, do you find that the holiday season is a little testier than other times of year? Oh, yeah. I had a few people this week have said, like, you know, I'm trying to go through my steps of service, give them the best experience possible, and they're like, can we please wrap this up? I got to go. 
or aren't like happy. And I'm like, okay, like if you don't, if you don't, don't want to hear my speech, that's okay. I guess I will move on. Oh my goodness. And I still maintain, I still, and, and, and I don't work in the retail industry, but I, it, it, it still surprises me because, and I, I know this thing exists. We've known it for years, but I still am surprised that it doesn't get better during the holiday season. I know people get stressed for all sorts of reasons around the holidays, but part of me still thinks that this should be the time of year when we are more understanding uh, of other people's situations and more willing to just stand back, let someone do their job, be courteous, thank them, and then go on our way rather than, you know, give the impression that we are the most important person in the world and it's their job to, to make us even more important in their eyes.